Some songs can have some powerful lyrics. I think back as a child, some of the songs I heard as a young boy. And then I think about my teenage years, some of the songs that, even secular songs that impressed me, the the message that they had. I grew up in an era around the period of time of the end of the Vietnam War. There were a lot of those songs that had some powerful meanings to them. But if you start thinking about spiritual songs, some of these songs can have some great messages within them. Oh, the depth and the riches of God's saving grace that we just sang about a few moments ago. And songs sung repeatedly, that is over and over again, can cause us to remember the lyrics. If I were to call out the name of some of my favorite songs, I dare say that I would implant in your mind, some of you, that song will be going through your mind all during the lesson. In fact, that's the reason why I did not mention the name of any song, because as I prepared this, I'd think about a song that I wanted to use, and next thing I know, for the next two or three hours, I couldn't get that song off my mind. It it just sort of consumes you. And so for that reason, I just want to make the point that sometimes lyrics have some great powerful meanings within them. The song of Moses. In fact, there's actually two songs of Moses. If you look in the book of Exodus to chapter 15, you'll see that right after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and God provided them deliverance, Moses had a wonderful song of God's power and God's deliverance from the Egyptians. But the one I want us to concentrate on tonight is found in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32. Chapter 31, verse 19 and verse 30, both will introduce what's going to take place in chapter 32. And it was an important song that was to be taught to the children of Israel. And uh, it's still important today. Someone says, I don't understand why you go to those Old Testament passages and, and study them. Well, if you'll remember what the book of Revelation records, in Revelation 15 and verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the saints. That is, those who are in heaven... Those who are in the presence of God are singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And so you and I should study this great song. What we want to do is to look at two things. I will tell you that I had an initial lesson planned. It was going to be about an hour and 45 minutes long. And so I actually pared it down. So we're only going to look at two things. I want to look at the context What leads up to this wonderful uh, song of Moses? And then to look at the content, the verses, if you will, of it. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons. In fact, there are five of them. Moses is now ready at the end of his life, in fact, the last month of his life, to prepare the children of Israel for his leaving and for their entering into the promised land. He's now 120 years of age. Joshua will be their new leader. In chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. 
Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Moses knew that his death was impending. He knew that Joshua was going to be their next leader. And so that's why we have the book of Deuteronomy. But there's some important things that are found here in chapter 31 that lead us into understanding the background and the purpose of this great song. The first one is there needed to be a regular reading of the law. There ought to be a time set aside for a public reading so that everybody gets to hear God's message. And if you look at verses 9 through 13, so Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priest, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the all elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time and the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before the children of Israel in their hearing. That means that every seven years you've got to hear it all. Now I want you to think about that. We're not talking about reading four or five verses. We're talking about every seven years you got to hear the whole law of God and it was all read and everybody's hearing at the Feast of Tabernacles. God did not want it to be forgotten. He wanted it to be reminded to the children of Israel. But the reminder was of an apostasy that was going to come and the consequences. You see, God in His divine wisdom and in His divine foreknowledge knew that Israel was going to actually Depart from his law. Would it be this generation? Would it be the next generation? Would it be the children's children? In the future, there was going to be an apostasy. And there needed to be a reminder of that. In verses 16 through 18, he said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. They're going to go over into that land of Canaan. And what's going to happen? These people are not going to do what God wanted them to do. They're going to go into apostasy. But there was a remembrance of this message by means of a song. <clears throat> Moses, I want you to teach the children of Israel this song. You're going to go up to the top of Mount Nebo. You're going to die. But Moses, they need to be taught this song. What will their future be? What will our future be? As you and I read and study this song, the content of it that's about to come, I think it's important that we put ourselves in thinking like the children of Israel. Thinking about the, the need for the next generation to listen and to hear the words of the song and prepare ourselves accordingly. This song, as Brother Larry read to us, was going to be a witness against them. You know, one of the things that I have listened to is some secular songs from the 70s that talked about the future. And again, I could list some of those for you of our secular songs and you would say, boy, they got it right. That's what was going to come and that's what has happened. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 19 now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a 
witness for me against the children of Israel. I want them to be able to hear it. And I want as they sing it to say, yes, that's what's happened to us. Verse 29, for I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. You need to hear the message of this song. And this is a song that has several verses, a story, a complete story to tell. There's some of the songs that you and I sing in our song books. When our song leaders announce we're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 5, I look at the song and sometimes those songs say one thing in verse 2, another thing in verse 3, another thing in verse 4, and if you leave a verse out, it doesn't change the meaning of the song. On the other hand, there's some songs in our song books that you need to sing all the verses of. All of self and none of thee. That's one of those you've got to sing all the verses to get the message of it. To appreciate the song of Moses, you've got to look at all of these five major ideas which he has. And what we're going to do in the rest of the lesson is just look at those very valuable five ideas. And the first one is, very simply, God is perfect. If you want to follow through with me in your Bibles, you may want to mark these as the, the five points. The first one is going to be found in verses 3 through 5. And Moses' song says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His word is perfect. His work is perfect. For all of his ways are justice a God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. I want you to look carefully at what Moses says about God, first of all. And he tells us his work, his ways and his will are perfect. His work, whatever God has done. His ways, the way God does things. And then the word and will that he has left for man. It's a Psalm 18 verse 30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those trust in him. Verse 32, It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. If I look at the almighty there's nothing wrong with him. He makes no mistakes. Everything that he has provided for us is good and right. How great thou art. On the other hand, in contrast, is a man who is crooked and corrupt. You look at us and if there's a, a division that occurs between man and God, it's because God has done what is right and we've done what's wrong. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 talks about it's not God's arm shortened that it cannot save. It's not ear, it's ear heavy that it cannot hear. But he said, your sins and your iniquities 
have hidden his face and his ears so that he will not hear. And then in verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. And there's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. The very first verse is, God's perfect, we're not. The second verse, the second idea is found in verses 10 and 11. And that is God pursued them. If you'll notice, all of these have the letter P. God's perfect and God has pursued man. Look at verses 10 and 11. He found him in a desert and in a wasteland, in a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. What a beautiful picture here. Like, like an eagle protecting. But it says that he found him in a desert land. The truth is, is when God found man, he was indigent. He was without everything. He was in need. I like the way Ezekiel puts it in Ezekiel 14. He's trying to paint a picture for us about the way God finds man and man's condition. And he uses an illustration. He says, as for your nativity on the day in which you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths, no, I pitied you to do anything for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you were self-loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by and saw your struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. God looks and sees man in his awful, pitiful condition and says, I want you to live. I want you to survive. God was interested in them and God instructed them. It's as if God looks down and he says, not only do I want you to live, not only do I have an interest in you, I am pursuing you to the point, I want you to do well, I want you to succeed. Deuteronomy 4 verse 36 says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you on earth. He showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. God wanted you to hear God wanted you to listen. God wanted you to learn. Because not only is He perfect, but He's pursuing you. For Israel, they needed to know that God didn't just somehow sit back and say, just let it happen. He pursued them. He wanted them to succeed. He wanted them to do well. And thus, God not only pursued them, He provided for them. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. In this context. So the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride the heights of the earth. That he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock. And oil from the flinty rock. Curds from the cattle. And milk 
of the flock with the fat of lambs and the and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. Look how he says what all God has provided for man. And what he provided was excellent. It was good. But God alone provided it. He said, there's no God with him. Spell with a little g. There's no other God assisting him. He doesn't need anyone else. God alone provides. These people are going to go into the land of Canaan. They needed to know it was God who was taking care of them. He had provided for them all through those 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He had provided water. He had provided manna. Provided everything they needed. Even their shoes didn't wear out. God was a good God to them. A providing God. But he didn't just provide. He provided in abundance. If you go back to chapter 28. You look at verses 2 through 5. And all these blessings shall come upon you. And overtake you. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. And blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. God said everything you do is going to do well if you obey me. The children of Israel, as they sang this song, could, could think, you know, God's always taken care of us. He's always provided for us, and He's provided for us well. He's always given us whatever we needed in abundance. And here we came into this land flowing with milk and honey. And God has taken care of us. Which leads me to the next, the fourth verse, if you will. And God has a problem. The problem is his people. In verses 15 through 28, God will rehearse the sins of the people. What they're going to do. And as they they sing this song and as they, they think about, yes, that's what we've done. I'm not going to read the whole section, but let me pull out some choice verses with you. Let's look at verses 16, 15 and 16. But Jeshurun grew fat. And kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook the God who made him. And scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations. They have provoked him to anger. I want you to get the picture here. Jeshurun grew fat. Thick. Obese. He's describing what has happened to the children of Israel based upon all the providing that God has done. God's given them everything in abundance. And now how are they reacting to that? They're turning against God. Their prosperity brought presumptuousness. And you say, what do you mean by that? Their prosperity made them think, look what we have done. Look how great and successful we have become. You know, it's just like a man who goes out and he works hard and he brings home a paycheck and he says, wow, look what I worked for. Look what I got by my own hand. Never thinking that God provided you the opportunity. Never realizing that God 
allowed you to work in a place that was successful. Go back with me to chapter 8 and you look, first of all, back about verse 12 and then we'll look at verse 17. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today, lest... When you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. You know, he says, I don't want you to forget when you get there who it was that put you in those houses. And you eat food from fields that you didn't plant. And you eat vintage from the grapevines that you didn't plant. And you live in houses that you didn't build. In verse 17... Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. See, here's the problem as they sing that song. <laughs> what have my hands done? Oh, is this, is, is this all what I have accomplished? And God has a problem with his people because what ultimately comes from it is to provoke God with idols. Look particularly with me at verses 16 and verse 21. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. Verse 21, they have provoked me by jealousy, by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. God said, I want you to understand Yes, I have a problem with you. You're following after other gods, but you need to remember there are consequences for the actions which you follow. Now here is the final verse. And that is God's potential for these people. If you look with me at verses 29 through 43, again, we're not going to read all of these. I just want to select out a little bit. Let's look at verses 29 through 31. Oh, that they were wise. That they would understand this. That they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? Unless their rock had sold them. And the Lord had surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies, their selves, being judges. Now you have to be careful as you read this section because there's a rock with a capital R and there's a rock with a little r. The rock that's perfect, going back to the first part of it, you remember verses 3 through 5, the rock that he speaks of there is God, but the rock upon which they're building is not the true rock. You see, here's the problem. He says, oh, that they were wise. They would see the potential that God had provided them and they would see how the path that they were pursuing ends. You know, it's like the song of Robert, or not the song, the poem of Robert Frost. Two roads diverged into a yellow wood and I I took the road less traveled by and that has made all the difference. 
I think that reflects what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 when he talks about entering in at the narrow gate. For broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many are going to go in thereat. Narrow is the way and straightened is the gate that leads to life and few there are who find it. The focus that you have is, is that you look at the two paths of life and look where they end. He says, if you look at the rock, God's rock, you follow Him, where's that going to lead you? You look at this other rock, you look at those that are not worthy of that trust and confidence, where does that lead? God held His vengeance in store. Look with me at verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things come hasten upon them. Oh, it's going to be bad. I think about the song we sing. There's a great day coming by and by. And then I think about there's a sad day coming. A sad day coming. You know, when you look at that song... And you sing that invitation song and you sing that verse, there's a sad day coming. If I'm not ready to meet the Lord, you know what that verse does to me? It makes me want to hang my head in shame and realize I'm not ready to meet the Lord. And that if He comes and I'm in that condition, I'm lost. But there's hope. Look with me at verse 39 and verse 43. Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I will kill and make alive. I will wound and I will heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. You don't get anyone stronger than God. Verse 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants and will render vengeance on his or to his adversaries, he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. Oh, did you not? Don't skip that statement in verse 43 because that's what really ties us to it. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Now you've got the idea why we need to be singing the song of Moses. We're the Gentiles. The future that God saw, the deliverance that He saw, was one that would come through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the deliverance that God foresaw, the potential, was that not only could Jews, His people, but Gentiles could enjoy the favor of God. Now I want you to look past the song. The song ends in verse 43. But when you get to verse 47, God explains the value of this song. He said, for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. He said, this is not just a song that you sing for fun. This song reflects life. Your life. Where it leads you. 
Songs often remind us of how good God has been to us and it reminds us of our standing before Him. We're going to sing this song of invitation. We're going to sing, I am resolved. And if you are resolved, you are resolved to become a child of God because of your faith, repenting of your sins, come forward and be baptized. And if you're a Christian and you see sin in your life, be resolved to do something about it. Why not come as together we stand and sing?